1: At this year's Golden Globes, it was Netflix that was the star of the show. For the first time, the streaming giant took home the much-coveted Best Picture Award for its Western, The Power of the Dog. The win was a nod to the might and the popularity of the streamers at a time when Hollywood studios are struggling to tear moviegoers away from their sofas. The Economist asks, I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, will streaming kill cinema? My guest is the actor and filmmaker Maggie Gyllenhaal. She's captivated audiences and critics for her portrayal of complex women in blockbusters and independent films alike. That whip-sharp performance as the submissive Lee in Secretary marked her breakthrough in 2002. The next day, I didn't even bring my cuticle scissors and my iodine, but I did make another typing mistake. What is wrong with you? That is all you have to do. Type and answer the phones. Is that beyond you? I'm sorry. Well, it's- Now, Hall is fully in control with her directorial debut in a dark adaptation of The Lost Daughter, a novel by the enigmatic Italian writer Elena Ferrante. With a female-led starry cast including olivia coleman and dakota johnson the film confronts a taboo rarely addressed on screen the malaise of motherhood along with the joys
0: maybe your girls being away from your girls you know
1: yeah well you'll see children are a crushing responsibility The Lost Daughter had a blink-and-you-missed-it theatrical release before it was beamed into households across the globe via Netflix. So, as awards season gets underway, how does this indie favourite see the role of the streamers? Maggie Gyllenhaal, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hi, thank you for having me. Filmmaking Seems to be the Gyllenhaal family business. Uh, your parents were directors and screenwriters. Your brother, Jake, is a very well-known actor. I can't help wondering what the dinner table conversations were like when you were growing up. I mean, was it as much movie talk as it was? Have you done your homework? Like anyone's parents' job, there's some
0: part of it that does make its way into your family life and your personal life. But then there's a whole part of it that had nothing to do with us. You know, it was just like what my parents did. But I do think when your parents are artists or when they have a real emotional connection to something, you know, that does affect what the family's like. And and I think both my parents were really interested in storytelling. And I think I I really came to see that as a valuable
1: thing. But look, you're a familiar face to so many of, of our listeners on the silver screen. Your breakout role was secretary. I remember going to see that, actually. I just remember the sort of wow, moment of it. And you bagged an Oscar nomination for your part in Crazy Heart, the, blockbuster turn in the Batman prequel for all the bat fans out there, the dark Knight. Obviously it works for you. Why then want to flip to the other side of
0: the camera? I love acting and I, I miss it. It's been a long time since I've acted in anything, I guess, but I see now that I was always bumping up against the edge of something. I really never felt satisfied. I, And I thought that's just how it is. I thought that's just how life is. That's how work is. That's how being an artist is, you know? And and I think I really didn't ever even allow myself to consider the possibility of directing and how much I, I think probably that's really what I always wanted. And I, I don't know exactly what changed. I mean, my kids got a little older, I got a little older and I did start to consider that possibility. And I mean, it was amazing how as soon as that shift happened, every element of it felt right. Not easy. I mean, it's not easy to direct a film, but there was an ease to it. Like picking up the right instrument. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's so funny. It's true. When my daughter played the oboe for a long time, and then she kind of picked up an accordion and, and she would play it you know, because, because she wanted to do the work. Anyway, it's true. It's true. I kind of call it being in the current. When I was um on set too, it was like you could just feel when all of a sudden you clicked into the current and you were all of a sudden being led and pushed by something alive. And I think in, in a way, everything, really everything about directing has felt that way to me.
1: Let's talk about Elena Ferrante. I'm also an absolute serial, you know, like I, I, I've got the medals. I've never had a holiday without one. <laughs> uh, I think my husband thinks <laughs> I might be secretly married to her, if indeed it is a her. Or maybe you are her. <laughs> that is a very good thought. Some people will know, some people won't. The author's name is famously a pseudonym and, and, and Maggie's just rumbled me, actually. So what was your experience? Did you find yourself packing this Series of extraordinary stories of these girls and their inner lives growing up in the hard Scrabble years in post war Italy. What took you there and made you think, hmm, an adaptation perhaps? At first,
0: it was, it was those books. It was My Brilliant Friend and all of the Neapolitan novels. And I, I think I came to them, I don't remember exactly when, but like, I think maybe the last two books hadn't even been translated into English yet. And it was a kind of a secret thing among friends of mine. Have you read these books? Um, like, go and get them right now. And then, you know, waiting for the final installments to come out. And, and I think the reason that people that I knew were responding that way to the book's is that they were really uncompromisingly, stunningly honest about aspects of the experience of being a woman in the world that had just never been articulated in my experience. Maybe it's really more right to say never been articulated so specifically where there was a real value in telling the exact truth, not some approximation of the truth. And yeah, I started with the Neapolitan novels. Then I read uh, Days of Abandonment, which I think is like a nearly perfect book. And in fact, originally I wanted to adapt that. And I went to her publishers because I, I, like everyone else, I don't know who she is. I haven't spoken to her directly.
1: You've had communications with him uh, then?
0: Yeah, through emails. Well, she's definitely a woman. I mean, there's no question in my mind that she's a woman. Oh. Absolutely not. There's no way. I mean, women's writing is different than men's writing and... Women's filmmaking is different than men's filmmaking. And her access into the inner workings of a woman's mind is, is a woman's access.
1: There was a theory, which I remember sharing with the Italian ambassador in London, I think he shared it with me, that it was a couple. Are you giving any credibility to that, seeing as you've had communication, even if it's not direct? She wants to be left alone. She wants to be
0: kept separate from her work. And I want to respect that. I completely
1: understand that. And I think like the territory she's in is really dangerous territory. Let's go into that territory, that marshy territory, that sense of peril in in the everyday in some ways that, that is there. And it is there very much so in The Lost Daughter. In the words of Leda, the character played by Olivia Colman, motherhood, she says, is a crushing responsibility that she says in, in in the movie, in the book, she says something a bit one step back from that, like it's, it's full of worries. But what is so original for me about the film is that it is the portrayal of her as both a, a mother who's trying to do the right thing, to live up to the role, and frankly, also quite a bad mother. I don't think she's a bad mother. I, I don't actually
0: really even know what that means. I think what she's remembering in the movie are those moments that come back to you and just fill you with regret or pain or guilt. Those couple of things, oh. You know, I didn't throw a doll out the window, but like what what did I do that I just went, oh, why did I do that? And to me, I think there's this massive expectation on women to mother in some kind of fantasy way I also am a parent. I've got two children. My oldest one is 15, so I've been doing it for a while. My experience is that there is nothing more intense. There is nothing more challenging. You can't come to parenting as anything other than a beginner, no matter what. And the stakes are so massively high. You know, you're handed a a human and I guess, I think, the expectation that we can sort of fit our feelings about it into a sort of very small box, which is really what's asked of us, is crazy. Because why wouldn't this most challenging, most intense, biggest experience of my entire life, why wouldn't it then bring up the whole huge, massive spectrum of feelings that are are possible in the world, you know, both the heart-wrenching, joy ecstasy mixed with real terror, real
1: despair, why not? The film presents a series of women who are in some ways troubled by the the role they're in, in some ways trying to enjoy living in the world. You know, they also want the the sensual world. They want to be at the beach. They They want to enjoy themselves in a perfectly normal human quest for that. The men seem somehow immune from some of these pressures is that something that you wanted to to put across Or so what do you think of that role it's uh the role of men in motherhood is going to fill several several shows and many phds but is that something that you have felt interested in i think there's a difference i have a
0: husband who is in the film who is very very much a part of the raising of my daughters like really a partner to me my experience, and it's only mine, is that it's different. My children need me in a different way. Maybe that's learned and it's my expectation of myself, or maybe there's something about the fact that they grew in my body and I actually fed them. You know, they sucked on my actual body, you know? I mean, I was playing intentionally with the idea that like, here's Ed Harris's character who we come to understand that he left his kids. They don't live on this island with him or he lives by himself. And that is, when a man does that, really not the subject of a whole film, right? When a woman abandons her children, it's a major, major, major transgression.
1: What we expect of of women at different ages and stages of their their life is reflected on the screen. And in many ways, it, it reflects and even forms Our views. You were told when you were 37 you were too old to star as the love interest of a 55 year old man. That kind of sexism and ageism, do you think that's still largely ingrained in Hollywood or has it changed?
0: I'm sure it's still ingrained in
1: in Hollywood. I mean,
0: I think a lot of things are changing and it's kind of amazing. But I can't imagine that that can just go away. I found something really interesting in my film. I noticed that a few times when people wrote about it, they said, a woman of a certain age about Olivia Coleman. And I was like, well, there's no, there's no question about how old she is. She tells everybody all the time. They asked her how old she is, and she says, I'm 48. And in fact, there's a scene where Ed Harris actually counts up each number after 40 to how old she is. And I was like... It's interesting that there's this kind of like euphemism that people are using, like a
1: woman of a certain age. It's a bit Oscar Wilde, isn't it? Yes, <laughs> a woman of a woman of a certain age. I think you, we need you as, as Lady Bracknell. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. You starred in the film Secretary, released twenty years ago. I remember it very well when it came out. How different, fresh, and challenging it, it felt as a film. You played famously the submissive assistant. She becomes involved in a pseudo-masochistic affair with her, her boss and also a love affair. When you look at that today, though, Maggie, in the context of Me Too and a lot more talk about relationships which have a power imbalance, do you still feel the same about that movie? Yeah, I do. That movie
0: is um, very clearly includes consent. This is a movie that's very challenging to, like, a black-and-white way of looking at anything. I mean, here's a woman who is made alive, turned on, not just sexually, but in every way, by this relationship with her boss. What are you going to do with that? Should that be categorically unacceptable? I mean, there's many places inside that movie where she explicitly consents.
1: If afterwards that affair had come out and he was the boss and she was the secretary and things change, you don't think that would have been seen as now much more problematic?
0: I think probably by a lot of people. But to me, what's important and very important to consider is that it explicitly over and over again includes consent. And it's a film that is offering an opportunity also. I mean, that's what I think. You might think something very different, and that's that's fantastic, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's a film offering the opportunity to think, and to feel, and to talk, and to consider. And I think um, there are so many incredible things happening in terms of empowering women in my country, in your country. It's important though that we don't ever put ourselves into a situation where we can't continue to talk and consider consider dangerous things, consider unusual things, consider outside the box things. I mean, that's, that's a really important part of this kind of revolution that's happening right now is that we continue to push the edges and, and consider all the gray areas and how we feel about them.
1: And if as a director, and I'm thinking of you now as a a director, if someone runs into an electric fence because taboos are in some ways stronger than they were when Secretary came out and they ran into a big public argument, what would your advice be? I mean, it sounds like you don't want constraint on on taste grounds, perhaps on what some people would consider politically correct grounds.
0: I think there's a real value in the respect that political correctness demands. But I guess I think it's also important to really keep your mind as sharp and interested in, like I said, the the complicated gray areas of all of these things as much as possible. If you're afforded that luxury to think about the gray areas, to make art about the gray areas, to, to consider them, consider them. It's a complicated conversation, but it was like an incredible conversation to be having culturally. I'm really glad we're all having it.
1: Massive audience shift from cinema to streaming, obviously already underway, but expedited, I think, by the last two years that we've we've all had. If you look at the latest Spider-Man film, it does seem to have coaxed people back into the big cinemas. But the public on the whole, I think, both sides of the Atlantic, more reluctant to return unless it's a big comic book movie, perhaps the latest Bond. But do you worry that these blockbusters are killing the kind of cinema that you you have devoted your your life to and now want to address as a director? Well, I
0: have found actually that Netflix, who put my film out, is a streamer, has become like a real home for artists. What I mean is that if you're not after an opening weekend, you know, like a massive opening weekend, and that's how you're going to make your money back, but instead their model is having to create content that all sorts of people find valuable and continue to make that content, then in that model, a movie like The Lost Daughter can have not the same value as like a Spider-Man, I don't think, but still a major value to them. That's not comparable, I don't think, to to the kind of value it would have to like an art house distributor who would put it out and make a little money. And that would be it, you know, like a a theatrical distributor. And I have felt, you know, they didn't make my film from from scratch. I, I made it independently and they bought it. But since they've bought it, both logistically and artistically supported by them and the way that they've put my movie out into the world, I mean, in a way that I I just can't think of a comparable example. So I also think another thing that the streamers do in the States, if you're in New York, you're in San Francisco, you're in Chicago, there's gonna be an art house cinema that's gonna play a film like mine. But what if you live in the middle of nowhere, but you like unusual movies, (laughs) you know what I mean? You would have no access to my film, none. What Netflix does is it sort of, it makes it so that a woman who didn't even know she was into Ferrante, she never read that book, she didn't care, but sees something about this that compels her, can click on it and watch my film, you know? So I guess I'm, I'm not at all in the sort of anti-streamer school. I have gone to see some movies in the theater uh, recently and um, they were, I mean, they were like more art house movies, but it's because I live in New York. I can I can do that. I can easily do that.
1: Maggie, you've outed yourself as a ferocious reader. For many of us, our book piles have been neglected over the past year or so. What would you recommend we pick up? Oh my god, it's so funny because you know you you
0: asked me to to put my microphone up. Um, on a pile of books, so <laughs> so you can record me. It's basically like my books that I've been reading. Um, so, what have I been reading? I am in the middle of this book, Milkman, by Anna Burns, which came out a few years ago, and I think it won the Booker Prize. It's a it's amazing. I read a really incredible book called The End of Days by Jenny Arpenbeck. I've read her. She's fantastic, isn't she? Oh, I love her. And are any of those ripe for an adaptation? I am looking for other things to adapt. I'm also thinking about the possibility of (laughs) going out on the dangerous limb of writing something without the North Star of an adaptation of a book to to look to. I'm kind of feeling around what I think I really want to do next.
1: Maggie Gillenhall, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. What's the greatest literary screen adaptation of all time? And are there films like Secretary you'd watch with fresh eyes? and find they don't quite meet your present taste levels, write to us, podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at Economist Pods. Sticking with adaptations, our culture section has reviewed the new film Munich, The Edge of War, based on the novel about the appeasement era by Robert Harris. It gives a makeover to the vilified British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain, played by Jeremy Irons. Read that over on our website. And as I always ask, Why not become a subscriber today? For your best introductory offer, go to slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers are Alicia Burrell and Julia Johnson, and the executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces.